would someone say if they looked at your Google Chrome tabs right now? Well, I just cleared all of mine in honor of like fresh mind, fresh start with this podcast. It's the middle of my work day. So like, I'm going to have to like now go back and reopen everything. But there's like this mental satisfaction of closing all of your windows and your tabs. You're like, it feels like a small, like little mini New Year's day every time I do that. Like that's how much like rejuvenation I feel if I like clear all my tabs. It's like a little celebration. I always feel yeah. like it's the end of the project. So, tabs I had open. Um, I had one on neoliberalism. Um, I had one, uh, Tavi, I think her name was Tavi Gevinson. She did this really good essay on Britney Spears uh, for The Cut that I've been avoiding reading for a really long time because she um, essentially points fingers at her abuser, and her abuser is a man that I've looked up to for a while. So, it's just been. I, the essay has been up there and I've been trying to read it slowly, but like it's been up there for like a week. Um, and then what else? Some YouTube. Yeah. Sometimes. Very, very on brand for you. All <laughs> the of spirit that. moves you to watch a Beyonce clip. You just have to. Um, yeah. What about you? Like, what would you normally have if you hadn't just cleared all your tabs? I mean, it's usually just. I'm so, I've so compartmentalized my time um, to maybe an unhealthy degree, but like I will only ever have like work things up at a time and then I'll close all of it and do like not work things. So <laughs> it was work time. I would have about a thousand Google Docs open and all of that sort of stuff. But the last couple of things I've just had open, I, I'm going to out myself here. I still use Pinterest. Um, <laughs> Oh my goodness, you are one of my so OG Pinterest friends. Thank oh, wow. you. I've been so You've loyal been here for, for so long. long. Oh my and goodness. They have, they have so many problematic things about how they've run that company. And I acknowledge that. And I applaud the women who have stepped forward to talk about how toxic that culture is. But I also have like 2,000 pins collected over 10 years. What like, do you do Pinterest. over, like Pinterest is literally like, I, I was a Tumblr, Tumblr kid. Tumblr adult, yeah. to be honest. I, like, if you were in the trenches in like 2011, 2014 Tumblr, that was the sweet spot. Um, I just didn't get. Did Pinterest. you ever use? Did you ever use the shoelace line? Do you know what no, that what's is? What's the shoelace line? What's that? Okay, so this is you were not in the trenches on Tumblr if you didn't if you didn't hear. This oh, it depends what trenches. That. Okay, <laughs> wait. Tell me the shoelaces. <laughs> tell me. The sho Maybe I was in okay, the cool kids so area. Back when, to be fair, I learned this last week um, from one of my friends who's also hardcore, used to tumble, um, as they say. Um, so she said that there was a thing back in the day when you were on Tumblr and you thought you were meeting another Tumblr and you wanted to like test if they were also on Tumblr, you would say, I really like your shoelaces. And if they replied, they're a gift from the president, that meant that they were also on Tumblr. <laughs> Okay, I wasn't ever trying to meet actual humans on Tumblr. That's dangerous. <laughs> this is this is what I'm saying. But like my friend has oh. done that. She's like, oh yeah, I like met. I was sitting next to a girl on an airplane, and I was like, I like your shoelaces. She's like, oh my god, they're from the president. And it was that's, a thing, Aisha. That's like meeting a fandoms. That's crazy. No, I I like never let anyone follow me I would just follow everyone and like learn what was going to happen in the parks and recreation episode that hadn't aired yet that's what I use Tumblr for I use it to follow John Green who is the guy who wrote the fault in our stars yes, I use it to, to keep up fishing the boat main proceeds. brand of all Tumblr girls was it <laughs> 
I've used it to reblog um, gifts from like early Gossip Girl, like season one Gossip Girl. Like, oh, those were the days. Those days were three years before. But I was like, oh, miss this. This is when TV was quality three years ago in 2007. And then that is all so vintage. Aisha, do you realize how vintage all of that is? Do you know how many Gen Zers who are using the word bet? don't understand anything you just said right now and i'm okay with that because i don't want to be friends with them <laughs> well yeah. back to tumblr this is yes, like a the dark the other <laughs> other dark uh kind of connection i have to tumblr in that i just watched um the netflix uh series on the cecil hotel Ooh, what's that? and i literally scary. didn't finish it because yeah i didn't finish it because the web sleuth angle of the show really bothered me. Like, I really don't like web. I, I have mixed feelings about web sleuths. I think that they've done some really great stuff, but they also kind of bug me. And uh, Wait, are web sleuths like really, people who just sleuth on the web or is it like an official? So web sleuths are people who like will take up some sort of unsolved crime or mystery mm. and like try and solve it themselves. Oh, okay. So you can see like there can be a really positive side to the way that they dig stuff up. So like there was a um, Don't F With Cats show, which like showed the really positive side of web sleuths. Like I really liked the people who were behind some of the web sleuthing there. This one felt a lot more like they were just like thirsty for blood. Like they just like found the whole, like they had like a really gory fascination in like a bad way. So the Cecil Hotel is this like really old, famous hotel in the middle of Skid Row in LA. And the history of it all is super interesting, but Essentially, the story, like the Netflix story, is about a girl. Her last known movements are at the Cecil Hotel. She's like a 21 year old or whatever. She's never left home. She's like on a solo trip. And it's super creepy footage of her being seen in the elevator for the last time. Like, truly, really. What would possess someone to? Why did you press play? <laughs> well, you know, I love this stuff. I, oh my gosh. it was, but even, even for me, I was like, oof, this is tough. But the thing is, the way that they were able to trace her steps so well is because she was an avid Tumblr user. So, like, police officers were able to figure out exactly what she was up to, what her mood was, like, that she was kind of uh, dealing with depression, all these things, um, because of her Tumblr. It, it was just a very fascinating thing that Tumblr played a, like, critical role in, like, piecing together her last days, so. I mean, this definitely... This definitely reminds me of two great uses of social media in movies and TV. The first one I would say is American Vandal. Did you ever watch that? I feel like it's your type of show. I feel like yes, you told me to watch I, American Vandal. I, I probably did. I finished it, like, I was flying from New York to Vegas, and I finished it, like, on my journey. Like, I watched the entire season from, like, sitting at the gate to getting to the hotel. I, I rewatched it in Christmas, like, all in one day or, like, two days with my friend, and it was, uh, it's one of the best shows ever, but it's really, really good at depicting the way young people use social media and, like, tracing steps using social media. And then the second example is, have you seen Searching with John Cho? No, I haven't. Ooh, highly recommend. I think you'd really enjoy it. It's also like one of those perfect 90-minute movies that I love. But um, it's a movie told entirely on the screen. And you know, movies, some mm. movies try that and it really just doesn't really work. But with this one, the like the director was so precise in the way um they wanted the entire story to take place. And the the plot line of the story is John Cho is like a single dad and his daughter disappears one day she disappears and he doesn't know where she is and he gets the police involved but the entire story is told from like the screen of a 
of a computer. So there's Facebook messages, there's Tumblr, there's, I think, Snapchat and Instagram. I don't think there's TikTok yet because the movie came out August of 2018. So I don't, I don't know if that was already a thing. I don't but, think um, it's around yet. And like the suspense is so good. I think you'd really enjoy it. So just look out for searching. I really liked it. Okay, I'll put that on my list. Um, what else have you been watching? Anything, anything good? Any recs for the audience? <laughs> Rex for the audience. Um, me and everyone I know is watching One Division. I don't know if you you have watched it yet. I still haven't watched it. Oh, it's so good, Mames. I know. It's I need to. So good. It's one of the best Marvel things I've ever watched because it's not even about the action. I mean, the action is there, and like the the storyline is sort of connected to the Marvel movies, but you don't have to have watched them. You just have to know a few details. But really, the the the, the TV show is about grief. And the many ways that like grief manifests and it's just one of those beautiful shows where like 20 minutes in you're just you're kind of crying at just how beautiful you know life and love are and also Catherine See, Hahn. Here's the thing I've entered the phase of the pandemic where I am like running on empty mm. and so for me I find a lot of comfort in re-watching things so like Currently, I am rewatching Game of Thrones, um, which is like not, which is you know how it ends that way. The <laughs> thing is, but like no one remember. Everyone wants to remember the ending, and like yes, the ending was incredibly disappointing to say the least. But I will say that like rewatching it, you're like, damn, this show was so good for so long. Like it is <laughs> like it was such a good show, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And the thing is when you watch it for the first time, it's so confusing. There's so many houses and characters and long names and like, there's a lot going on, a lot of geography. Like now that I've watched all the way through and I have all the context, it actually makes it really enjoyable to watch it the second time around because oh. you can better follow what's, what's happening. So I've really enjoyed rewatching Game of Thrones when we were in the middle of the uh, Texas winter storm, which oh, as yes. an aside, all of that happened. You since survived. We recorded. Yeah. Like so much, like, so much has happened. Anyways, you I'll lost like water, you electricity, enjoying? like so much. Yeah, so much. Uh, Texas is, and now Tex oh, Texas, whatever. We'll talk about that in a second. But yeah, we will. Rewatching Game of Thrones, but then as a palate cleanser, we've been watching like an episode of Seinfeld. Oh, okay. So it's like good vibes. That's 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 like my capacity. Um, I'm also, I will say, I'm watching Alan versus Sparrow, which is really hard. Oh, um, yeah, that's on HBO, it is, isn't it? really good yeah I, like it's very hard to watch um all sorts of very obvious trigger warnings um to anyone who wants to watch it um but it's it's pretty remarkable so um yeah okay. i i i like you it. recommend it i should watch that um i you know me i'm always trying to better understand the story of princess diana because i have a very kind of warped um memory of her first of all i thought sure. she was still married to charles when she died I know my mother and all of her friends love her so much. Um, I can only think of her as like this person with a halo on top of her head. So then I finally started the You're Wrong About, you know, the podcast You're Wrong About. They have a series on Princess love Diana. It. And without even realizing or forgetting that um, Megan, and, Megan and Harry have that big Oprah interview that's airing on Sunday, March 7th, which will be the day before this podcast comes out. Um, but I started listening to the episodes this weekend and I just haven't stopped. They're so good. And I'm learning so much about who she is and like what kind of person she was. Um, someone once said that if Diana were alive, Beyonce would send her an Ivy Park set. And I believe that. I love that. I think that's totally right. 
she totally would. She would be like, I don't know you. We don't know each other. You live in England, but here's a whole set of Ivy Park clothes. I think you look fabulous in it. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just learning so much. And like the, I'm, I'm sure we'll have more to talk about, about like Meghan and Harry once the interview actually airs, but just the way the British press are already ready to throw Meghan under the bus for this, like, uh, because Prince Philip was rushed to the hospital recently. People, they're yeah. implying that like, oh, he's rushed to the hospital because he's heard news that Meghan is giving this interview. Um, she like wore some jewels that were like gifted to her by Mohammed bin Salman, the um, crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And uh, I think the Times wrote an article being like, this woman accepted gifts from the man who killed Khashoggi, even though she wore the, she wore the emeralds like months before. The way they framed it made it seem like, you know, he killed Khashoggi the day before and then the next day she put on the earrings. But then even more hypocritically, it's like the, the, the British family and the British royal family and the politicians like love Mohammed bin Salman are always cozying up to him. And I was going to say, like, it's not like the British royal family is out there like condemning the Saudis like left and right. Like, and then also, like, the let's talk about anything. the jewels that they all have. Like, where did you guys steal those ones from? This was a gift. Yeah, I, <laughs> you guys I mean, literally stole is, everyone's jewels. Did you watch the um, what's his name? James Corden? I watched it twice. With, it was so fun. Was well I done to Harry's had, PR team for the, the James Corden time. interview. Yeah, that was. I mean, beginning to end, I was cracking <laughs> up, like being on the like double decker bus and the, the, the boutique car flying. <laughs> <laughs> that was when I realized, oh, so much of this is really not scripted because they wouldn't have let that happen if it was actually scripted. The tea cart definitely fell all that over was, the place. Yeah, I mean, like you saw the producer's shoe, like like you saw his leg go flying. Like it was, that was, <laughs> but like Harry was such a good sport about the whole thing. And then like going to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air house, like all yeah, of it was just like was just so chef's funny. kiss. So good. Yeah. Um, but like I appreciated that he said, like I appreciated his take on the crown Mm. Uh, because the crown also just won, like the woman who played Diana won a um, Golden Globe, Golden Globe um, yeah. this weekend, and she he was like, uh, "It is fiction. It's not. It's not fact." That being said, like it is, it gives you like a loose picture of like what life is like in this family. So I and I liked that response. It's like this. This is like fictional dialogue. Like this is not real, but it also is like not wrong. And well, it also doesn't present itself as, as real as well, whereas like the press right, does. Right, it's not a news reporting. Yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not a documentary. Um, so but, yeah, I'm excited to watch the interview uh, for sure. It's going to be interesting. Um, okay, what's our 36th question for today? We've been speaking for a while. I haven't actually we spoken have, to you one-on-one one in a while. <laughs> I know. Also, like, what is this podcast I showed? Tell us. Oh, um, welcome to It's Kind of a Funny Story, uh, a podcast where pop culture and politics collide <laughs> wow you stole my line i showed up i know right. i was happy through the line and i was like wait that's mames's line yeah <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> and this Asifa. is episode actually this is episode 25 we are Woo! quarter quarter life right here do you remember being um, 25 remember being a baby uh miss it remember we had a joint 25th birthday we did have a joint four of us birthday. celebrated 25 together and so we were collectively 100 100 Let's, yeah. let's try and celebrate 28 together. Let's see if this can happen. 28, we can do it. I mean, we're going to talk about vaccines today um, yes. in more detail, sneak, sneak peek. But Joe Biden has, um, I, when I say Joe Biden, I sound, 
I feel like I sound like Kamala. Every time I hear someone Joe say Joe Biden, Biden, I hear it. Me, Joe Biden. I hear Kamala's voice. I always think of um, Whatever You Like by T.I. Won't Joe Biden. Need have you Joe been following Biden. that story? Wait, T.I. Yeah, not being... Wait, T.I. Yeah, not being tiny? brought back to Ant-Man 3? Isn't that... Wait, hang on. Let me... I'm about to say oh, something and I could be wrong. My my story, this is my angle on it, is that I follow the Ant-Man 3 news because I love Ant-Man. And T.I. is in Ant-Man 1 and 2. He's funny in both. But he's not being invited to Ant-Man 3 because of allegations against him. Plus... Um, that was what I was going to say. I was like, <laughs> do you know that him and his wife have together been accused of oh, like, together he and tiny oh yeah his wife is tiny's in on it uh oh no he was also drugging and assaulting women so that's terrible it's been a joint effort on their part so oh wow i don't know why you were talking about ti but i was just, just I mean, wondering if you'd heard that news he made the song whatever you like but now i feel uncomfortable that i sang that <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> what is our 36 question names? That was such an elegant transition, Aisha. Well done. I'm um, a producer. Yeah. I produce. <laughs> produce what is always the question. Um, yeah, our 36 question in honor of the Golden Globes and all of the other fabulous things going on, um, which is being at home still. Also, if you are in Texas, please keep wearing your mask. Uh, there are also great lists of restaurants and places that are open that are continuing to enforce masks because as of this recording our horrible governor who let us all die in our homes during the recent winter crisis um, has also lifted our mask mandate in Texas so no one here is required to wear masks anymore that's great news what? please keep wearing a mask anyways not on that note um, but I wanted to plug our question today is if you were walking the red carpet who would design your look so Aisha Hey, styling you. I had to look up how to spell this designer because I thought it was something else the entire time. Ely Saab. Simply because she designed most of the dresses in Taylor Swift's Blank Space video. Do you remember that video? I do. A cultural reset for me, myself, and I, personally. Um, the dresses were amazing. Just to the floor. They all look like wedding dresses. That is who would design either Ely Saab or whoever gave Jason Sudeikis that um, hoodie to wear <laughs> to the Golden Globes because he also looks great and I, I, mean, I would like that. A hoodie, that's like your after party look, right? Like you're wearing yeah. your sob and then you throw the hoodie on on top. Uh, is Blank Space the one where she shoots in Africa? No, no that's um, Wildest Dreams. Uh, Wildest with, Dreams. With, 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 yeah, guy. That guy. Yeah, yeah. that guy. Um, no, Blank Space is... <laughs> all of your, your Taylor Swift news. That um, guy. No, uh, Blank Space is the one that's quite self-referential. It's the one where she admits that she has a problem with relationships and she, you know, she, it, it's, it's, I like that she's actually thinking about, you know, the way people perceive her. I find that funny. Um, and it's the one they're on an estate. Um, oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I vaguely remember that. It's a for great video, come on, know, 2015. I mean, for those of you who don't know, I'm just like, I'm not a Taylor Swift person. I've We've been moved on from hating Taylor Swift. We now are just ambivalent. That's what I decided. Yeah, that's fine. That's why, like, I haven't thought about her in a long time, except for she keeps showing up in all my, like, uh, Capital One commercials um, where she's picking a cardigan. 
from her closet of cardigans and that's the joke but apart from that I don't think about Taylor Swift anymore um but yeah Ely Saab is a great designer I will give you that okay now I remember the guy in this uh video what? it he is Scott Eastwood who is the grandson of Clint Eastwood and in my opinion Clint Eastwood's greatest contribution to American cinema um, just because such a hot take. <laughs> it's a very hot take. All of my movie bros do not enjoy the fact that I, I really don't like Clint Eastwood. None of his movies work for me. Um, but Scott Eastwood makes sense to me. And yeah, that's him. That's that's the guy that's in it. Okay. He's also yeah. in Pacific Rim Uprising. He's in Suicide Squad, apparently. Um, he's in a lot of Clint Eastwood movies, actually. And when it's his father, Shocking. it's not his grandfather. It's his <laughs> I was gonna say, I was like, Clint Eastwood is not that old. No, Clint Eastwood I mean, is really old. old. Like, Mary, he's ninety years old. <laughs> is he really? He's ninety years old. His son is thirty-four. Oh. There's a great SNL skit. Well it's Mulaney and Pete Davidson talking about uh, Clint Eastwood's movie, The Mule, and about how like Clint Eastwood wrote and directed a movie in which he gets to have a threesome at ninety years old, and it's just the most Clint Eastwood thing. Um, you know what? The man is paid his dues. <laughs> <laughs> everyone support <laughs> scott eastwood okay what's what's your designer we are moving on to like 30 minutes of just banter right now <laughs> i mean the people love it um so i have thought about this for a long time um so i would have alexander mcqueen and sabiasachi team up to design my look so sabiasachi for those of you who don't know should immediately check out instagram um because they actually just did a partnership with Bergdorf Goodman as well, which is a big deal, but they are like the like designer in India to like, I mean, they're just, they make amazing, amazing stuff. And I like, um, I think Sabi Sachi does a really good job like combining like really traditional motifs with like really edgy, like sleek kind of looks. Um, and then Alexander McQueen, I just love everything Alexander McQueen does, like also super edgy really elegant, um, like both delicate and strong. Like, I just think the two of them together would make me an amazing look. And I look forward to the day I'm manifesting at Aisha. One day yeah. I'm gonna wear an Alexander the, McQueen slash Sabiasachi look. To the Globes or which, uh, which award show are we, are we going to? That, that feels like an Oscars outfit, mm -hmm. I think. Okay, don't settle for less, yeah. don't settle for less. Um, yeah. yeah, I can, Sabiasachi, I'm looking it up. It looks very, very beautiful and elegant, as you said. Okay, let's get into our episode. We're going to take a little bit of a break now, but when we come back, we'll be talking about soft power, its definition, its origins, and the forms that it takes today. So, Including uh, vaccine diplomacy, so we're going to dig into yes. the latest, latest craze in soft power, vaccine diplomacy. We'll be so. right back. All right, uh, welcome back. Aisha, you are, you're gonna kind of lay the land for us as our usual IR expert. Um, <laughs> if you could define for us, what is in fact soft power? Um, expert is fact, a strong. It, was, it is a, yeah, fun fact is that soft power is originally gonna be what we named this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I was saying one expert is a strong word, but also, yeah, the original title for this podcast was soft power. And I thought, I don't know, you and I thought it was a brilliant title. We were like, oh, this is so smart. It's like has IR, but it's also we're soft, you know, we're soft women, you know, there's so much going on. And everyone we talked to, everyone we told was like, we don't get it. 
So <laughs> we had to change the so, title of the podcast, but who knows? That podcast name is available if anyone's interested. Um, yeah. And if like some IR institution isn't going to come for you, you can just take it. But anyway, what is soft power? So in contrast to, you know, quote unquote, hard power, the term soft power in IR refers to the ability to attract and appeal to other state and non-state actors in order to reach your policy goals, rather than using coercive tools such as offensive war. So it's a cultural diplomatic tool. The point is that you can win hearts and minds faster if you appeal to them through diplomacy, cultural collaboration, you know, cultural exchanges, and other such forms of foreign policy. And the term was popularized by Joseph Nye, Nye NYE, kind of like Bill, I wonder if he's related to Bill Nye. I we don't have time. I thought about that, imme I thought about that immediately. <laughs> you keep talking, I'm gonna look, at, I'm gonna look, look into it, it real Look fast. into it, they could be like third cousins. Okay, so Joseph Nye, who I believe still teaches at Harvard University, he served in the Clinton administration and he's, learned his, he's lent his expertise to democratic presidencies since then. And uh, it, was most, it was popularized in the 90s, but then he actually wrote a book in 2004 called Soft Power, The Means to Success in World Politics. Um, I read the book back when we thought that this would be the title of the podcast. Um, and he explains in the book that he believes that power is the ability to influence the behavior of others to get the outcomes that you want. This was like a big trend, by the way, in a lot of um, IR and, and, and politics, like academia was just trying to define what, what power was. Like every like politics book would start with powers, the ability to influence the impossible power. Like it was just always like a random mishmash of nouns. <laughs> but anyway, so, so Joseph Nye's idea, I guess, is that, you know, instead of like, like, like states should shift away from just trying to use threats and coercive power and um, f economics to um, shape their foreign policy and they should they should start using you know soft power which is cultural diplomacy you know appealing to people through like language exchange programs for example or just donating a huge amount of aid um and making mm. sure that all the aid boxes have like the u.s flag on it so that everyone in that country knows that it was the u.s that did it um so yeah do you have something to say yeah no well i was gonna it's interesting because i was obviously reading up on this topic before we spoke and there was an interesting idea of like how and I'm curious to hear if you agree with this or not but sometimes it feels like hard power and soft power can be like it can be a blurry line of like where does it begin where does it start um because like do you consider hard power like the minute your gun fires the minute like a check gets exchanged or like you know money is withdrawn or whatever um because there was a, a great example from janice viali matchern who argued that when george w bush used the phrase quote you are either with us or you were the terrorists it's kind of like some combination or it's like some blurry line in between hard and soft power because it didn't involve economic or military force but it creates this narrative of like good versus evil like america's on the side of the good and then like the evil that you're trying to fight are, are the terrorists and you get this kind of like you and know. this was like in the aftermath of 9 11 right like you're, uh, I, I believe so yeah either with us or with the terrorists i feel like i feel like i would still classify that as hard power because it does come it, it does come with a threat of some sort of attack or some sort of right. um, outcome um, you are either with us or with the terrorists when he's um, when he's threatening like violence against a terrorist or threatening to invade places where he thinks terrorists are. I think that would still be hard power. But Joseph there's something Nye, very moralistic about it, right? Like if there's like almost like a moral angle to like the way 
that he's phrased it where he creates like a narrative around like us versus them not just Mm. in a like military way but there is like this trying to write like a global story around like who are the protagonists and the antagonists which come with not just like military force but like how you're treated like by the rest of the global community and like if you're going to become like a pariah right because if then suddenly you're like let's say someone else wants to send aid to a country that you know George W. Bush considers you know with like, terrorists, with terrorists yeah. then there's like other there's also like soft power implications so it's it, it's interesting right I think that the idea like the, you can't have one with it not that you can't have one without the other but they're both always at play in some way I guess I mean, I think fundamentally, and this is where it gets really interesting from an Arab perspective, it, it also like hinges on uh, the difference between the point of view of George Bush and Joseph Nye. Like George Bush is someone, um, actually, let's not say George Bush. Let's say the people who, around, who surrounded George Bush, because George Bush just cared about football. But um, the people who surrounded George Bush, you know, are people who would maybe consider themselves realists or neorealists. Like the idea that there's an us versus them and like the international system is anarchy. We talked about it a little bit on our, in our North Korea episode. Whereas Joseph Nye, who is considered one of the founders of neoliberalism in international relations, not in economics, um, is someone who believes that like states are are like interdependent, and you like you rely on each other to move forward in the world. And I guess for him, the us versus them is just fundamentally just a wrong way of looking at the world anyway, because in the end, the actions of the yeah. terrorists will come back to bite you somehow if you like if you set up the world in that way, because we're all interdependent, the actions of the countries where the terrorists are will come back to bite you. Um, and, you know, some would argue that, he, that he'd be right. I don't want to get into neorealists versus that's, neoliberals because I'm terrified whole, of the debate. That, yeah, that's a whole, like you, I don't know who will come after us if we touch that one right now. Um, but I, I do see what you mean. Um, I would still classify his rhetoric as, as him trying to use hard power, but through like, through rhetoric. Yeah. Him threatening something through rhetoric, whereas like soft power in that, in that like scenario, instead of saying you're either with us or you're with the terrorists, is maybe trying to, you know, set up a school in the places where you think terrorists are um, are recruited, so that you know, maybe these people go to the school instead of join uh, gangs or like join a terrorist group, or you might decide that you want to like get some language exchange programs going or give more money to the government to provide um, economic. Um, support so that people don't feel that like joining a terrorist group is the only way to move forward um or do the inverse of those things where like i could more likely george bush would have like pulled back on any aid that was being given mm, or pulled back on um schools or pulled back on language exchange programs right like that's yeah the flip side of soft power i guess i always think about like giving but yes there's also like the taking away or they're just trying to like Mm -hmm. um trying to like cordon off what is accessible to people. Um, so I wanted to give some examples of soft power in history, but we've actually just given some good ones here, but I'll just, I'll just mention the ones I have written down. Um, one of the most famous ones is the Marshall Plan, which happened just after World War II. Um, uh, in February of 1945, you had the Yalta Conference. It was a conference in Yalta. It was attended by Churchill, FDR, and Stalin, who were in charge of the UK, US, and Russia. And they were all pretty much in agreement about how the, you know, the war would end and how they would take care of Germany. But by the time, um, by the summer of 1945, um, at the Potsdam conference in like July and August, uh, things had changed and Stalin remained, but by this time Churchill had been voted out. So you had a guy named Clement Attlee, who was 
uh, there representing the UK. And then also Truman had been elected by that point. And Truman was very much like anti like communism and very, very suspect. Um, he suspected Stalin of trying to take over all of like Eastern Europe and all the way up until Germany. So then to combat that, the US, um, I think Congress passed of what's now called the Marshall Plan, um, named after the Secretary of State at the time, George Marshall, which was $12 billion, um, in today's money, $130 billion to give foreign aid to Western Europe in order to prevent the spread of communism. So it was the idea that so, you weren't like, yeah? No, go ahead. Well, I was just saying the idea is that you don't put like troops on the borders in Eastern Europe to try and prevent Stalin from creeping in. You try and just like build up Germany, West Germany, East Germany, um, and build up those other places in Western Europe so that they don't fall to communism. Did it work? Unclear. Mm, no. Mm. <laughs> there, were, um, there were pluses and minuses, <laughs> but yes. Well, um, every time I hear about the Yalta conference, it just feels like the ultimate example of something I learned in world history. I don't know, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it's just like, the ultimate world history class is talking it's the about example, the Yalta conference. It's the example you like keep in the back of your pocket for an essay when you're like, this yeah, yeah, is yeah, an example. Like, the Yalta, it's like the one thing you will always remember is like, oh, we learned about the Yalta conference. Like, I, it's just like this funny like thing in my head. I just literally picture myself sitting in that classroom in high school learning about the Yalta conference. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is I think I've plugged this podcast before, but I it's perfect to plug again. Um, I need to actually finish it myself. It's called Wind of Change, and it's from our, our favorite lads over at Crooked Media. Uh, the idea is like boys. this: the boys, um, they, uh, the the journalist who does the show is investigating whether, like, the way in which the CIA may or may not have used like music and rock music and like a particularly popular band um, to end the Cold War. It's truly Ooh. wild. It's really interesting. Like he goes so deep into like talking to people who were big in the entertainment industry at that time and like fishy meetings that they had had and like getting um, weird contracts from the government to do things. And like, who was this mysterious manager who was like following the band around? Like, was that a CIA operative? Like all sorts of really, really cool, like detailed um, things where you're like, something was going on here, like a hundred percent. So that is interesting. Soft power. Yeah. Soft power. And like, all of this is really interesting. That podcast is awesome. Um, everyone should check it out. Yeah, no, that, that sounds like a good example of it too. Um, another example, just because I've been listening to this Diana podcast is someone like Princess Diana herself, who was called, you know, the, yeah. the people's princess. And she, you know, was able to like leave the UK and go to places, um, you know, where there have been landmines, for example, and go and visit children and mothers there. And that was like really, really good for the diplomacy of the UK. Um, and even she was one of the first famous people to, to hold hand to someone who had contracted HIV AIDS, which I also think, I think that happened in the UK, but it was also just a good example of someone like using their, their power in that way. And in the podcast, they do say that round about when she died in 1997, Tony Blair, who had just become the UK Prime Minister, like was actively trying to work with her to make it kind of a, a, a partnership between the government and Diana. Um, so that's good use of soft power. And then vaccine diplomacy is another example, which we're going to come and talk about a bit later in the episode, right, Mames? Yeah, um, that's, it's not totally new, but it's very fresh in like what is happening in the world today. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but actually, when it comes to actually measuring soft power, like knowing whether or not it's worked, um, do you have anything you can like kind of speak to on that? Like I have a couple of thoughts just based on like, I mean, like I thought like India is an interesting case of soft power, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts too. 
I know that there's a bunch of metrics. Um, there's like three or four official reports that come out every year to kind of weigh who has the most soft power. And at the moment, Germany is kind of leading the, the tables, which I found interesting. I wouldn't have put it yeah. uh, first. Um, but then I also, you know, I had thoughts about like the limits of soft power because somewhere like Japan, for example, has such um, like Japan's place in like pop popular culture is so interesting and they have so much to export. But because of Japan's um, because of the Pacific War and the memories of Japan's involvement in the Second World War, um, its neighbors don't really love it. You know, like there's yeah. a lot there's a lot to do with like Japan. Like, has a lot of currency and soft power, but can't really use it as much as it wants to because like there are neighbors, including like Korea um, and in China, where you know no one really wants Japan to have that much influence because of the history of its imperialism. So there's, there's that, there, that's one limit to soft power. But what do you want to say about India? Well, so you, you mentioned it, but like there are a couple of like standard uh, metrics that people use and on all of those like metrics, India does not do well. But if you hmm. really like look at it holistically of like how India is doing, you could argue that India is very good at soft power, right? So like there are limitations to even how we think of it. So the metrics, um, so a couple of points on like why the metrics with in, in the case of India don't always tell a full picture is that they use per capita uh, metrics uh, and like when that's the case, uh, India is like always going to struggle, right? Like it's, you can't, can't compete there. Um, India has more top 30 unicorns. So those are like startups that are over a billion yeah. um, than any other country apart from the US and China, but has a really low digital penetration. Um, you know, India has like a lot of UNESCO sites, but like per capita and like everyone thinks about Indian tourism, but like per capita, not very high. So like you think about those sorts of things. Um, and then you also think about um, a lot of the kind of diffusion of Indian culture didn't come from the government, it was not orchestrated by the government. Mm -hmm. it, like Bollywood, it, like only recently has Bollywood become like an instrument for the government, which I've ranted and raved about <laughs> a lot. You can on listen this to our episode on it. It's not that far behind. It's, yeah, go check it out. It's a good one. Um, but, you know, so you, even Bollywood's like kind of uh, spread around the world is not like a government thing. So again, like, does it constitute soft power? It didn't come from the government. Um, and then to your point in terms of like, who is being receptive to these things uh, with Japan, like the neighbors, like Japanese, like J Japan's neighbors are not so pumped about it. Um, similarly, like, it's still not the most quote unquote prestigious or high value markets that are very responsive to India. It's like slowly getting there, but mostly it's other developing countries that are excited about India's growth. Like it's other South Asian or uh, East Asian countries, for example, sending their students to Indian colleges. It's not, mm. you're not seeing like American students going to Indian colleges, right? Like that's not going to happen. So um, despite like on paper failing, like India has done a good job like there was this really interesting example of George Harris like we know that the Beatles like loved Indian culture like there was a whole there was a whole thing going on there <laughs> did people um, watch the yellow submarine the, the oh movie? my gosh I forgot about that yeah no I haven't seen that in ages I totally forgot about that I was forced to um it. but like George Harrison did a whole concert um at Madison Square Garden um whatever in like the 60s uh when India like took over East Pakistan and turned it into Bangladesh like so, you know, it's, anyways, that's like a- Wait, did he do the concert in back. honor of India's actions or in opposition to India's Yeah, action? he did it to, I think the proceeds went to uh, proceeds. like supporting these new citizens of like India, whatever. Um, and then 
even now, like, there's been so much, like, goodwill that has slowly built up with India positioning itself as, like, the largest democracy and, like, um, you know, all the stuff that it's done the last couple of years. And uh, it's considered, like, a de facto nuclear weapon state, but, like, in a positive way. Like, they're like, oh, I'm the good people. You want to have nuclear weapons. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, and there was a lot of, I, I just remember this now, there was a lot of frustration with, like, the Gates Foundation, um, giving Modi a lot of props for uh, helping like get people more access to sanitation in India because mm -hmm. of all of the other stuff that he's pulled. But that's part of soft power, right? Like he's gotten, like that's, that's the kind of recognition he's getting right now from like people like the Gates Foundation for doing good things for Indians. Um, so that's just part of Modi's campaign to like, well, you know. Well, my question to that is just, so something, um, I think I, I think I disagreed. I came to disagree with Nye on this and, um, because I really didn't understand his reasoning, but he made a point to say that non-state actors cannot really wield soft power in the way that state actors right. do. And like when he's giving, when he's uh, talking about his theory, he's, he's, he says it's just states that can do these things on, on an international stage. And I guess my question is like, India's soft power, it feels to me, like the way you, you've spoken about it, it doesn't seem like it's concentrated in the government's hands. Or do you think that like, like it's, or do you think Modi could, you know, convince someone in another country to do something using soft power? Or do you think that Bollywood would be more likely to, to be the influence there? That's a Did fantastic I, question. I am sense. not the subject matter expert, but like, I would <laughs> say like, so there was definitely like the government took more of a hand in soft power, uh, 90, like from the nineties onwards. So like, there is like some definitely like state, um, state-run soft power initiatives. Um, India still, rightly so, has like a major kind of corruption reputation um, going on. So there is like, I think that's part of why the it's limited in terms of it coming from the state. But I also feel like there's probably a lot we're not seeing where, so for example, if you don't know a lot about Bollywood or sort of the machinations behind it, you wouldn't think that the state has much of a hand. It's like the entertainment industry. Like if politicians, or like if celebrities are tweeting support of things, they're like, oh, they're just celebrities tweeting about things, whatever. But there is like a lot of insidious stuff going on behind the scenes. So there's probably a lot of state-sponsored soft power stuff going on that we, that we don't just don't know. India. Yeah, okay. exactly. So that's like I think there's a lot of puppet puppetry going on that we can't see. Which again, like I don't know where that would fall under Nye's definition of like um, it, that feels like a very another very blurry space of like, if a politician is nudging you to do something or bribing you to do something to further their own agenda, but they're not actually executing the soft power, what is that? Um, and I think that's what's going on in India. So yeah, which is, okay. it would be a good question to ask him one well, day. I mean, like every good IR student, Nye at the end, uh, after his book is published sometime in the late 2010 says, actually, what we should all pursue is smart power, which is a mixture of both hard and soft power, using both to achieve your goals and just leveraging both tools. So he eventually comes out kind of in the middle. Um, so we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we are going to get into vaccine diplomacy, which we mentioned earlier, has become kind of a hot topic recently. So uh, we'll see you soon. The, I mean, the group chat talking about 
Megan and Harry. It's just been 24-7. We're on different really? time zones and we all have thoughts. Everyone's Amazing. Like, my, literally, my mom just texted, they are relentless and tone deaf. Who? Because Buckingham Palace has decided they're going to examine the bullying allegations against Meghan. Wait, I I'm hate... so confused. Are you saying that, like, wait, who they're investigating? So, the, so Buckingham oh. Palace is going to look into Meghan being bullied or, like, Meghan's no. bullying Oh yeah, I should. I'm sorry. I should have mentioned the precursor to that is that is that all day the Times and all the other articles, all the other media are saying that uh, there are people who left Buckingham Palace, who left the residencies because they were bullied by Meghan, which is an accusation that's been lobbied at her since the beginning, and it's something like as a black woman, you're just like, okay, I don't believe you, sure, um, but today they've decided to kind of ramp it up because of this interview coming up and the Guardian just um, tweeted that Buckingham Palace is going to examine bullying allegations against Meghan, which like, doesn't the palace have better things to do? Wearing Saudi jewels. Wearing <laughs> and stolen artifacts colonialism. Exactly. And like, I mean, I, I like have come around, like at first I was like, oh wow, I, this really sucks for Meghan, I'm sorry. Um, also sucks for the people that like thought they had to leave their job because they felt bullied. But the more I think about it, the more I'm like, you know what? What did you say to be bullied? That's, that's my question. What did you say or do to men? <laughs> um, were you racist or offensive? Did you say something that just wasn't cool, wasn't on, and she had to let you go? That's what they should have. But also to your point, like I was talking to this, I was talking about this with one of my students who she's a she's a black woman and she is like an introverted personality and she's like i have a lot of concerns about being an introverted black woman in the workplace i was like yes like those are valid concerns you are not wrong in feeling that way um and so like the way that people read black women's emotions is just so warped and so like i don't really trust and i don't trust buckingham palace staff to have a nuanced understanding understanding of how to interact with people of color. So, I could start a whole podcast that. about introverted black women in the office. We have a group text. <laughs> we share all of our examples. There's a great article from earlier in 2020 called When Black Women Go From Office Pet to Office Threat. And it's really good. Mm. I might share it on the, on the, if we add this to the episode, I might share it on our um, thing because it's like, it's when you, you know, join an office and everyone thinks, oh, wow, you're so quiet. You're so cute. Like, good. And then all it takes is just you not going to the office party because you're introverted or you not like being all like excited and happy to see everyone and suddenly people or are giving feedback in a meeting and everyone's like whoa whoa yeah wow That's she came on too strong she's bullying me yeah the article's really good i'm definitely going to share it but i could start a pod there's there's a group text um i i I, someone defined Diana as a high functioning introvert um, in the podcast I'm listening to. And I feel like I would also identify myself as that. Like people think Same. I'm extroverted, but I actually need to conserve my energy all the time. No, I'm exactly like I told someone recently, I was like, oh no, you know, as an introvert, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, but you're so socially like, like you're so like socially equipped. I was like, that's not what introverted means. People like to think that being <laughs> introverted just means you're awkward. Um, and that's not what it is. Being an introvert is that like being around people drains you and you need to recharge more than extroverts. Um, it does not mean you are socially awkward. That's like a separate thing. Um, and I totally agree. I think she, at least in my understanding of Diana, I think that's accurate. I also 
feel that way. Um, where yeah. like, I, I love my friends and I like, you know, I'm happy to talk to them or whatever, but like beyond that, I like this happened to me recently where I was sitting in a group of like six people, like outside, like spaced out, of course. Um, and I just got hit with the moment of like, I need I everyone need to, leave. to leave. I need, oh. and the problem is they were in my house. So like everyone oh. was like, I need everyone else to leave. So then I did all the signaling of like, picking up plates and like um <laughs> saying like oh so what are we gonna order for dinner like doing all of that stuff just being like I need everyone to go right now uh and these are people I love dearly and I was like I need everyone to leave immediately um which extroverts can't possibly understand like that level of like shutting down and just being so tired um I mean I will say that my favorite person to hang out with is myself like I'm the best company and there's just times when I well yeah some ways you are (laughs) but it just you just get hit with it whenever you're hanging out with someone and you're like oh wait I just I would rather be by myself right now I'd rather just be with my own thoughts and then you you, it it get you get hit with it so suddenly you just have to kind of shrink back a bit but um yeah maybe that's That's not what this episode is about at all what is this episode about memes well so we were going to talk about um the latest trend in soft power uh, which is vaccine diplomacy. So um, Joe Biden, like I said, just announced that the United States will have enough vaccines for everyone in the U.S. by the end of May, which is amazing. We're very happy about it. In fact, when he when it was announced, it was because of this partnership between Merck and um, Johnson and Johnson. Oh yeah. Um, I immediately thought about the episode of The West Wing where they're trying to like broker a deal. Um, Oh, damn, what was the, what were, they were trying to broker, anyways, there was a whole episode where they're sitting in a boardroom all day, and that's, like, where the episode takes place, and they're trying to broker some sort of deal, and, like, I just pictured, basically, an episode of The West Wing, um, in, like, this deal being struck, anyways. Joe he's, Biden's West he's Wing. Disa- yeah, he's disappointed me a lot the last couple of days, but I am very pleased with this news, um, so very excited about that. Aisha, what's the situation vaccine rollout-wise over there, by the way? So we've been told by um, an untrustworthy man that we'll be in the clubs on June 21st. <laughs> if you that, believe, is that why I'm seeing so many memes, memes about like, June 21st? Yeah. June 21st. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you believe Boris Johnson, I have a bridge to sell you. Um, but um, I think like vaccines have been doing really well. Um, like the NHS, because they're so precise with the flu vaccines every year, they're able to kind of methodically go through each person depending on your age range, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm expecting a text, hopefully in April, maybe May, about my vaccine. And so I'm, I'm excited about that. But um, Mames, the question I want to ask you, because someone asked me this the other day and I had so many thoughts, what song are you excited to shout in the club <gasps> at your friends? Like what song, like in the past, not, not that it's come, back, come out in the past year, but that you've come to love in the past year and you just want to like sing it with your friends. You can say okay, that well, this is not so this is not going to be this is not my answer but it's the in that it's the first thing that i pictured and like not that i'll i anyways wop was the first thing that popped into my head <laughs> that's exactly that was exactly like, my answer i think yeah i was like that's that it's that um but also any of the like reggaeton i've been listening to the last year like yeah, it's the so. only thing i listen to and like so i just yeah, I want to sing some J Balvin in the club and like drop it really low and have like the most. Oh, I wanna have so much the, the first time a Maluma song comes up and you and I are in the same place, Miriam. Uh, 
Oh, we're bringing the roof down. It's going to be so beautiful. It's going to, it'll really be a sight to behold. I can't wait. Um, Excited. Yeah. Okay. That was my question. Tell me what vaccine no, diplomacy is. We've been teasing it for an hour. <laughs> the moment you've all been waiting for. Vaccine all diplomacy. All stayed here for vaccine diplomacy. Enter applause. Um, all right. So vaccine diplomacy is essentially uh, countries using their vaccines to strengthen uh, regional ties, basically serve their own agenda and enhance their own like global status and image. Um, and so like I had said um, however many minutes ago, that uh, this isn't necessarily a new concept. So when there was the uh, small smallpox uh, problem, however many years ago, um, one of the reasons that we were able to come to um, like eradicate it as quickly as we did is like a healthy rivalry between the Soviet Union and the US. Um, similarly with the SARS epidemic in, 20, uh, in 2002 rather, China provided assistance and support to affected countries to really like bolster its own status, um, including to Taiwan. So this is like really different from what's happening now. Like what, as we'll, we'll give some examples of what um, diplomacy, like vaccine diplomacy looks like in how it's playing out right now, but it's not like this healthy rivalry that's like, in, like you know, inspiring everyone to work harder and collaborate. Uh, it's, it's, it's something a little more toxic than that. Um, so a couple of examples of how vaccine diplomacy is playing out right now. So in early February, half a million doses of uh, the Chinese Sinopharm uh, COVID-19 vaccine went to Pakistan. Um, and the Chinese ambassador to Pakistan declared it, quote, a manifestation of our brotherhood. Um, then India has been donating supplies to AstraZeneca and Oxford jabs, which I really like. Is this a British thing, calling them jabs? I um, don't know. I guess Maybe. so. Yeah, it's a jab. It's a jab. I don't know. I, I love it. You, you um, don't call it jabs in the U.S. or we don't call it jabs in no. the U.S.? Oh, okay. You got a flu jab? It's a British thing. You got... No, you get a flu shot. A tetanus jab? No, we say tetanus shot. Oh, okay. Well, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, I think jab is English. Uh, uh, <laughs> okay, so yeah, India has been donating the fancy Oxford yeah, jab. to Bangladesh, Myanmar, Nepal. Again, like wanting to create this reputation of having cheap, accessible vaccines, um, but also to challenge like China's um, reputation right now and tensions between India oh, and China so have been really high. Are you implying that China gave the vaccines to Pakistan as part of its rivalry with India and it's kind of a power? Okay. Every, there's, like, there's like this push, push and pull happening in Asia of like who is- Who's giving like, the vaccine. Who's giving the most, who's doing the best, who's like really helping like move the needle for lack of a better phrase um in asia and it's like india and uh, china sort of like being rivals on it um russia um first of all its vaccine is called sputnik which <laughs> is brilliant and i don't know what i also would have expected um that, that person had a good day at work when, when they came <laughs> up with it they were like that's it i'm done for the month pay me now let me leave <laughs> um, but like 20 countries have put in orders, including Mexico. Um, okay. And like uh, president, uh, uh, the president of Mexico called uh, like Putin and they had a whole nice chat and Putin's been invited to hang out in Mexico. And it's like, again, it's just like all about building goodwill. Um, and in fact, I've read a lot of articles about how like, quote unquote, the West, uh, the vague West has been a little bit behind on the times. It's only now that like Macron in France is like talking about doing this and the U.S. has pledged to help and the U.K. has pledged to give extra supplies and all of this stuff. But like 
it really has been like not quote unquote Western countries that have been leading the charge this well, way. I mean, so the issue with, with Russia, just very uh, quickly, the issue with the Russia vaccine is that there's also a lot of um, news reporting that it wasn't, that it, it took a shorter time to produce than the quote unquote Western vac vaccine. So I think Sputnik, they announced that it was done in the summer in like August or something. And then they injected it into Putin's daughter to prove that, you know, if she can take it, everyone else can take it. Um, so, I mean, I don't know, maybe part of the reason why they're able to sign so many things so quickly is because it's been ready for so long. Whereas the Oxford, um, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, those were only like December onwards, I believe. Totally. I, I think that makes it a lot of sense. So they, they have an advantage here, um, mm. which says something about like where the U.S. was at in all of this, at least, um, which yeah. we know very well um, what was going on here. So um, so this is it's interesting, right? Because on the one hand, you can read all of this like exchange and like donation of supplies and vaccines and stuff as like, you know, everyone's in this together. Like, we're only going to eradicate COVID-19 once everybody, like, is it's vaccinated. vaccinated. Yeah. Like, very much, like, that's that's the bottom line. Um, so we do need everyone vaccinated. And there is obviously, as always, a disparity in terms of, like, who is getting vaccinated the fastest. So at this point, 15% of the U.S. has been vaccinated, while only 7% of, um, on average, of low-income countries have been. So we do need to spread the love. But then, as I have alluded to, this, like people do not have the purest intentions here. So a couple of other examples. So this made headlines um, quite a bit, but Israel essentially had a ton of vaccines that they could have given to the Palestinians that they are currently, you know, have doing a military occupation on and opted to send it to their allies instead. Um, but because there was so much backlash, they've actually walked that back a little bit and said that they'll vaccinate Palestinians um, that have work visas or um, work papers. Um, that's but still a caveat. There's still a caveat. Like there are still of lots of that will not get, yeah, will not get vaccinated. Um, and then people are also like actively undermining their rivals. Um, so like their China and Russia have been accused by European and North American governments of state-backed uh, disinformation campaigns to undermine vaccines produced there. Uh, and like even though there is like some prioritization of lower-income countries the whole deal with soft power is cozying up to like the powers that you want to cozy up to, which are often not going to be the most in need countries just inherently. Yeah. So um, there are people who are going to get left behind. So like we can't, we can't look at some of the examples I've shared and be like, oh great, like every corner of the world is gonna get it because that's just not what's gonna happen. So all of these like really bilateral disjointed efforts are just not gonna work. And like I said, this is not like a cooperative, like good, healthy rivalry. This is it's a lot of inefficiency and distrust that have really like bled into this. So that's, that's sort of the state of vaccine diplomacy as we've seen right now. Um, any thoughts and, on show? Well, yeah. What I like about this is that this is like a continuing um, topic for us. Like we could come back in six months and have much more to say about it because, you know, with vaccines then comes the ability of people to be able to travel widely. And then you start to think about, you know, the people whose passports, because you have a certain passport, you just will not be eligible to travel to a certain place because the, your, the country you're coming from didn't have access to like the, the US vaccine and the China vaccine or the Oxford vaccine. And, you know, this could go on for a while. Um, so I'm curious to see what happens next. Um, but yeah, kind of dangerous to be playing with people's lives in this way. I, I would say, you know, the organization that should be in charge of all of this and making sure that everyone gets the vaccine is the WHO, the WHO. Um, but 
at the that moment. That way too efficient and logical, Aisha, for the World <laughs> Health Organization to, to be have in enough power of world to health. be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Dream big, girl. Dream big. I, I try. I try. Well, so the other thought I had, like, kind of thinking, and this, like, maybe, again, I'm here to just, like, I want to, I don't want to think in a binary, and maybe this is, like, what's happening with me. I don't know. Or maybe I'm just needing another cup of coffee. But <laughs> the classification of vaccine diplomacy as soft power obviously like makes sense in the definition that we've been using but um as you said in the very start of the episode hard power is about you know military force and uh like economic force coercion um, coercion economic coercion um that word and it is a great word um but and vaccines are an interesting example where it's not like it's not like an exchange program it's not um movies and pop culture it's literally something that is life or death um and it's also something that's incredibly valuable and expensive it takes a long time to produce so there is like an economic significant economic value um inherently built into each of these vaccines so like my question to you aisha is like is this like some new form of hard power or do you still consider this to be soft power oh, that's a good question i hadn't thought about that i think i think in many ways nice descriptions or nice definitions are outdated because the way the world yeah. works is just not as simple as as the way he described it in the 1990s i would still like for the purposes of the of the theory i, I would still classify this as soft power even though in the end it yeah. is like dealing with people's lives and um it may cause deaths like there isn't kind of an act of coercion. There really isn't a gun to anyone's head here. It's more about using your diplomatic skills to get more vaccines, to make sure your people are vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's not economically tied either. It's not like, oh, you give give me a certain amount of money and we give you the vaccines. A lot of these a lot of these countries are donating them almost yeah. in the hopes that like they will support them in whatever venture they try and do in that region of the world. So um, I would still classify it as a soft power, but I, I like where your head is going and it makes me wonder if we just need better definitions. We need a new, whole new theory, perhaps. No, I think, I think, I know, I think you're exactly right in that probably as the definition stands today, it's still soft power. It was just like a thought I was percolating on, but I also totally agree that the framework is really out of date, right? The world that we live in now is so different than where we were like 30 years ago, mm. um, which is what we're talking about. We're talking 30 years ago. Um, so something for, you know, for you to like not get on while he's still, you know, still teaching still and thinking and talking all sorts of whatever. Um, maybe he can, we can ping him and be like, hey, bro, any thoughts? I mean, he's any probably updates? like bored at home at Harvard, like has nothing to do. And we can just message. We probably just like not knowing how to use his Zoom lectures and being like, I give up. And he just makes all of his students read his book and say, that's your lecture. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to imagine, trying to imagine him using Zoom and it made me laugh. Um, it also reminded <laughs> me of the part of the Prince Harry interview where he explains that Prince Philip doesn't leave Zoom meetings, I he know. just closes the he laptop. He just his laptop down. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everyone should go watch that clip if they haven't. It's, Honestly. It will make you smile. Like, I hate to stand a member of the royal family, but Harry is, is quite funny in that episode. Okay, Mames, I think this is the end of another episode. I think so, too. Um, talked for a while. We have. You've listened to our 
beautiful voices drone on about who knows what. We've covered a lot of topics. Um, but as always, we appreciate you hanging in there to the end of the episode. Um, if you want to uh, find us or if you want to direct your friends to us, we are anywhere that you stream your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, whatever. Um, Aisha, where can they find us on social media? They can find us at Kind of Funny Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And you can also email us at Kind of Funny Podcast at gmail.com. Amazing. Yeah. All right. Until next time, everyone. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Masalama.